Alex. <laughs> hey, Steph. Um, thanks for joining me. Uh, I told you cats in Colombia. Um, so like originally I wanted to do like a good cop, bad cop approach, but now I'm just going to have to sound like completely bipolar <laughs> and just do both myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I know uh, when I, when I DM'd you, I was like, you know, it, it's not going to be like Alex Perez apologism. Hour, <laughs> so I hope that's okay. Um, but I really appreciate you um, coming on to talk about the recent kerfuffle. Um, My yes. pleasure. I'm excited to, uh, to delve into it and maybe, you know, yeah. So not be the great, you know, the great bad man of literary Twitter. Right, right. Yeah, the Iowa pariah, <laughs> which is um, that every time I read that phrase, it just cracks me up because it's 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 like this like slant rhyme that just doesn't quite work. And every time I read it, I'm like, this guy graduated from Iowa, but can't rhyme two words together. So no, I'm just kidding. But like, but obviously that to me is like a flag, right? To not take the ensuing discourse too deathly seriously. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I love that. Um, so anyway, how how are you feeling? Let, let me start with that because um, people really came after you uh, recently. Um, actually, do you want to start off by just sort of like encapsulating like what happened in your own words? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this thing dropped, I think, September 29th mm -hmm. on the website, the interview. Uh, yeah, so it was late September. I put it on Twitter. It probably got about 80 likes. 20 or 30 retweets. So it did okay. It was read. That was fine. I got it out there. I wanted to write it. It got out there. It got read by a few people. Cool. And then about two weeks into it, so we're talking like probably October 11th or 12th now, I'm on Twitter, as we all are. And really quickly, I get like four or five follows. And I hadn't tweeted or written anything recently or yeah. that day. So I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. And it's all people who've written for like little, you know, mags or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, let me. Let me Twitter search the interview. And then yeah. there it was. The initial, this was a painful thing that really, you know, that was a tweet from this person. Like, this interview was really, you know, painful and it hurt me. And I'm really sad that Hobart put it out. That was basically the tweet. And then it linked, obviously, the interview. And then from there, all hell broke loose. It became this really, really fast, obviously. Uh, I guess we can call it a mob if you want, because that's what it looks like. It was, just, mm -hmm. it was really... It was really fast. It starts to go viral in that small little niche, little Twitter of, you know, little lit world. And that was the first, like, day. It was all pure, pure hate. Mm -hmm. But really quickly, probably, like, day day two, uh, the people who were opposed to the mob came mm -hmm. out. And that's what I found really interesting, that I think the initial tweeters and haters thought that it would just be, oh, everybody's going to hate this dude because of what he said. But really, really quickly... Uh, friends of mine and people that I know and really good writers came out and kind of started to resist this. So it became this kind of battle between these two sides for the ensuing kind of, I guess, week of this whole thing going on, week and a half. That's what I found really fascinating that it was it was assumed by the initial mob that it just be this carte blanche. We're going to just shit on this guy because nobody's going to like him. But then really, really quickly, a lot of writers came out and said, no, this is a thing that's, you know, Sure, there were parts he was mean or whatever, but we agree. And that, I think, was a really telling sign of what's going on now. Like, 
in this lit world that it really is this two polar opposites. I had one side of people saying I'm like the worst man in the world. And the other side was like, oh, but everything he said was just kind of common sense. So I think that was a really interesting part. Yeah, so I, I so how did that, um, like, how did that impact you? Like, I, I mean, you've been writing sort of, uh, you know, like, <laughs> you've been writing from, for some edgelord publications for a while. So I, I think you're like a little bit used to taking heat for certain things, but obviously not to the same scale. Like, where did you feel like, did, were you daunted by, by how, how many people uh, were basically, you know, like calling you like evil or, you know, just like. No, no, was I daunted? No, like when it first starts, you're, you're like, okay, here it goes. Mm -hmm. It's going to start. But what's really funny, I never got a single negative DM, not a single one. Oh, really? Time. Every single DM and email was a yeah. positive comment. Oh, interesting. And what's really, really funny, yeah, there wasn't a single negative DM. And what's really funny is that once the people, I guess we can say on my side came out, like mm -hmm. all the haters started to go private, go on Twitter, hiatus. So there was this kind of, like I said, there was this understanding or this belief that it would be just be okay to go after this guy and nobody would like, you know, post some kind of, you know, kind of comeback. But I've, you know, cultivated many friends, many writers. So there was, but was I ever daunted? Uh, no, I mean, you don't like, you know, going onto Twitter, having all these you know, notifications. You don't like that. But like, I didn't feel that it was a, I think just by the way Twitter is like people, like you're not like a real person to them once this starts. So I kind of assumed that, yeah, yeah, now for this kind of duration of whatever this mob was gonna be for that week and a half, two weeks, I was not gonna be a real person. And it's, these aren't people who know me personally, who know anything mm -hmm. about me. They read some interview and really, really quickly they go nuts. But was I ever like, you know, I never took it personal is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I would have thought that you would have gotten more um, sort of aggressive DMs, but it, it sounds like you mostly got sort of private. Um, yeah, 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 work. yeah. It was just like, you know, mm -hmm. subtweets and tweets that were negative, but I, yeah. I didn't get a single negative, like every single DM, and we're talking major writers who I'm not going to name, we're talking unknown writers who are mm -hmm. extremely positive. Okay. So I would say the entire experience was like probably like a positive, heartening experience that there is, there was this groundswell of writers who came out on my behalf and they were saying, no, no this thing was a good thing, you know, for the yeah. I mean, to me, it's always interesting to see like which fires kindle and, and which ones don't. Um, I, it, because there are, I, I mean, like for instance, right, there are sort of like uh, liberal sort of establishment literary darlings um who go on very sort of spicy platforms like like Sheila Hetty and Brontes Purnell uh were on Red Scare um and, and Conroe who obviously had a uh Shantar Conroe who had had a major book deal went on Red Scare and, and nobody sort of bats an eye right and and we're talking about uh we're talking about a podcast that's platformed um, like relatively sympathetically, like Alex Jones and Steve Bannon and stuff like that. Um, and, and it's totally fine for sort of established writers um, to sort of engage with that sphere. Um, but if you're, uh, but God forbid, you know, you're a smaller time writer, um, you know, and that to me, I don't know, like the question I guess that raises in my mind is, whether there is sort of like a careerist underpinning to that bloodlust because maybe they see 
um, you know, maybe, maybe there is whether consciously or subconsciously, um, maybe they're competing more directly with like you or Elizabeth Ellen or something. I, I feel like that, uh, I feel bad saying that because I'm sure some people like truly were offended or like do hold the values that they claim to hold, but um, just sort of seeing again, like which fires Kindle versus not, it, it is suggestive that it's, there, there's um, a lack of purity there in terms of yeah. what principles are trying to be upheld, you know? Yeah. I think it's really interesting that a pretty much unknown writer, like, yeah, sure, I write for a living, I do okay, I'm on Twitter, but I'm a pretty unknown writer mm -hmm. in the scheme of things, got this massive heat. Like, that to me is really interesting. Like, some people were talking, like, if I'm some, like, head of state, like, in the literary world, it's so, you know, ridiculous. I was, you know, I'm just this, like, working writer. So I think there is this kind of careerist thing there. And I think a really big factor is that for a lot of these writers, these little magazines like Hobart are like mm -hmm. major, major things for them. And here came this guy and kind of now made the entire magazine toxic. So their little credit that they'd worked so hard for if to get in Hobart or to get in some other magazine was totally destroyed because now they have to pull their story. So I think that's part of it. Like here came this guy, we didn't know who he was two days mm -hmm. ago. Now all of a sudden he's like this horrible person and he just, he destroyed this magazine that we worked so hard for. Like, I think a lot of these writers, they're not going to be Sheila Hetty. They're not going to be Conroe. They're not going to be these major writers. And they know this, even though they won't admit it, they know this. So what they have are these small little journals. They have these credits that they cling to so hard. How do I know? Once they pulled it from Hobart, a lot of them immediately went to other smaller little magazines. So it was why, you know, for them, it was why was this magazine that I worked so hard for? Why did they allow this guy and now make it toxic? And now I got to pull my little story. So that was a fact again, because yeah. I'm not, like, it shouldn't matter what Alex Perez says that much to these people who didn't know who I was, you know, two weeks ago, unless there is major underpinnings of this career, careerism factor there, I think. Yeah, and, like, yeah, I definitely... That, that was kind of my suspicion, though. Again, I, I, I think that that might be kind of, like... Um, like an unkind interpretation. Like I also want to be, I, I also do want to sort of consider that the points that people raised, uh, which I think are not necessarily um, without without merit. Um, so I mean, like one element of the of the interview with Hobart that that seemed to grind people's gears um, was your rattling off of these like. Um, you know, OG, like, mascul masculinist writers, right, like Bukowski, Kerouac, Hemingway, um, Carver, and so forth, and, um, and I think people sort of took, we're taking, we're taking to task for um, not reading more contemporary stuff, or, or just um, sort of being stuck in, in, in that old, in that old um, paradigm, which is now seen as, like, obviously, like, problematic, but I, I guess like I, I do have a maybe like a tiny bone to pick with you there as well, um, because like uh, while there's obviously like nothing wrong, I think, for, about about enjoying those authors, I do think that there is really good writing um, today about um, the messy, the messiness of like um, 
male sexuality or right. or uh, really good like vital quote unquote transgressive writing right. um though i do think it mostly comes from smaller presses as opposed to like the huge publishing houses that you're right. sort of condemning you know when it comes to that question i was obviously saying my earlier influences and yeah obviously when you say those names Kerouac, charles bukowski hemingway these are already signifiers and these names mm -hmm. are laced but yeah these were the mm -hmm. early writers and I still like some of those writers but when you come from my background I did not have a literary background my parents came from Cuba mm -hmm. when they were teenagers probably spoke English I didn't have a household where I could pick up like Ann Carson because my parents had her so I was growing up in Cuban Miami and I was playing baseball and I had some kind of desire to get into the writing life and I really had no orientation or way to do it but on occasion you would hear you know from some friend of yours who was a nerdy kid mm -hmm. Bukowski anyway and it's a young right. jockish guy being in Miami those are obviously the people who you were going to gravitate to Gino Diaz also because he was writing about things that that there were that were I can see in my reality I mean if somebody would have said oh here read you know like I said read you know Ann Carson you know read Marilyn Robinson who's a teacher of mine who was great I would have probably read that early I on. I did not come from a literary family whatsoever. So what was it mean for me? The hard part to become a writer was I basically had to create and cultivate my own curriculum from scratch. Mm -hmm. While I was living in a neighborhood where there was nobody really speaking English, while yeah. all my friends were playing baseball and we're into just that heavy dog life is in Miami, once you play baseball, that's your entire life. So for me, I was trying to create and cultivate this curriculum on my own. So it was obviously going to be a lot easier for somebody to say, you know, read this weird guy, Charles Bukowski, who, when you're 17 year old guy, you know, that stuff resonates. So yeah, no, I, that's how that happens. Yeah, I definitely I didn't get have access that. I, mean, to these, yeah, I didn't have access to these other books because yeah. I didn't grow up like my house right. where there even were books. No, I, I totally hear you about like just trying to like build your own curriculum because I, I mean, you and I are both, I mean, neither of us are like white um and and i also came from a background where yeah we had no books in the house um and 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 yeah i didn't grow up with any sort of like a an intellectual sort of culture um but um i guess i guess the what what i wonder though right is um you sort of name these influences and then um sort of point the finger at the mainstream publishing industry um, as being composed of, um, you know, white ladies in Brooklyn, pearl clutchers who are no longer willing to put out this type of writing. And I guess my, I guess, I guess my thought there is, well, that kind of makes sense, like under capitalism, because the majority of readers are sort of these like um, traditionally institutionally educated white women. Um, so it, it's kind of a chicken and the egg problem, but like, I, like it kind of makes sense to me that, that, that the writing that is being published through those venues would cater to that demographic. Um, but I do see like really great stuff coming out of like the independent lit sphere, right? Like, um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rattle off some titles here, but like, um, Daryl by Jackie S from, from Clash Books, um, is, you know, the protagonist is a cuckold. There's a far right, 
um, dude in there that is depicted as not like 100% monstrously, um, you know, Body High by John Lindsay, there's an incestuous relationship in that one. Um, essays and Fictions by Brad Phillips, um, The Sarah Book by Scott McClanahan. Like there are books that are being published today um, by indie presses, some, some of which are actually have, have, have pretty big readerships. Um, you know, that, that, that is tackling like the same themes that like, you know, Bukowski and Kerouac and, and Hemingway tackles. Um, so, so I guess my point is, you know, why not just be happy with this, with that, with what we have, you know, with, with this fear? Like, why should we try to, to take over um, the Brooklyn white ladies, uh, you know, um, turf, I guess? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying it's a matter of taking over that scene, yeah. which I don't think it can be taken over. I don't want it to be, I mean, I don't yeah. think it can be, I think if that ever happens, it'll be like, on a really long timeline, like if that can change, people want to change. And that wasn't the point of like, oh, I want to change this scene. It's just, to me, it's the hypocrisy of that. Even, even throughout this whole kind of Twitter thing, like nobody, nobody has talked about two things. Nobody has uh, said that it isn't 80% young women who are editors from a certain background. Like, nobody has talked about that whatsoever. And I'm not saying like that's a bad thing, but it's just, if you have this pose that you want to like, publish BIPOC writers and you want to do these things, mm -hmm. you know, you, you want to find these voices, you know, that are kind mm -hmm. of marginalized. And like, if that's what you're saying, then you need to put your money where your mouth is. You need to at least like, I don't see any publishing program that like caters to like working class people. That's something else I was like talking that here, the interview, there was, there was all this talk of class and none of that was mentioned that that was totally ignored because that's obviously a foreign issue for you to go up to these institutions and become an editor. Like you need to either have some money or understand even like the institutions that exist and how to penetrate them to even get those jobs. So that's my beef with it, that there is this little token dance that POC writers have to do because the 80% of the young women have a certain understanding of race and class in America. And that's the problem. So yeah, if you want to see these voices that you talked about, which Phillips, some kind of hand. I love those two writers. Like, if yeah. you want to see those voices, and if you care about those voices being published, you know, by these bigger presses, which they don't have to be, but if somebody cares about that or has the question, why aren't these other voices there? I think it's because these numbers, and it's because there's this misunder, there's this massive gap when it comes to class. Like, there was a major, uh, there was off, there was obviously a beef with the content of the interview. But another thing that really caught me. In, I was struck by was there were people who had problems with, with like, you know, curse words, which was weird to me. Like, if you have Wait, problems really? with curse words, yeah, yeah, people were like, no, they were like, oh, if you would have said these things like in a different way, it would have resonated. So that right there, like, if you have problems with the word pussy, and I'm not saying it's a pretty word, you really can't, <laughs> you really can't live like, I mean, that right there tells me you're not around working class people of any kind of uh, race because. I mean, so much of the beef was like, oh, he said it in like this ugly way. And yeah, maybe there were parts that were written, you know, quote unquote, in an ugly way. But if that's like something you're harping on, it really tells me that you have no access or contact with people who speak or who can't speak in an ugly way, you know, quote unquote, ugly way. And that to me was really, really telling that it wasn't only the content that was bothersome. It was yeah. just the way it was even delivered. And I mean, 
obviously <laughs> I wrote this in a pseudo kind of performative right. Miami kind of way. And right. Like, of I course. can't imagine any of these people who were like petrified and scared hanging out in Miami. Like I can't imagine it. Every single thing, like yeah. they would just turn the corner and they'll just be like appalled. So that right there tells me like this really all goes back to a massive class insulation that people obviously they didn't want to talk about it because they know there's a massive class gap here because if some yeah. I mean, yeah, for me, like I get the beef with the content. Yes. There were some things that people were bothered by because those are their beliefs. I understand that, but I was really shocked by like, he cursed or he said it in an ugly way that was like, Whoa. So now we have these writers that mm -hmm. you have to align with them politically, ideologically, but you also have to have these like markers of sophistication in the language. That was really telling. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely like sympathize with that, like criticism of just like using, um, sort of using identity politics as a proxy for class, which it absolutely is not at um, the sort of like elite institutional levels. Um, like even, even you know, I, I still submit to um, long-standing prestige mags and you know they'll have these submission periods that are like oh BIPOC you can submit like for free as opposed to three dollars or something like that um which is like what it why don't you just make it you know I, I, and not to say that Here's there's what I'm any what value I'm in like soliciting like BIPOC voices people, but like if you were yeah. more concerned about class like if you make yeah. under x amount of money per year like you know the submission that's the problem these right. people want to be woke, but they're not woke enough. If you want to be woke, you will actually elevate people of color who are marginalized, who can't even pay, you know. It's like this three-day window where, you know, you don't have to pay 10 bucks to be in a magazine. A lot of these, you know, little writing spheres aren't woke enough is the problem. Like, like, I mean, for me to become a writer, I literally had to teach myself this entire infrastructure of the writing world while I was playing baseball. So, I mean, I see plenty of people in Miami who, who could who could possibly be writers, but to even understand what an MFA is, to them is a weird thing. They gotta be taught that. So it's just kind of like these assumptions that, that are like created that, and it's from these kind of class bubbles because yeah, it's like, oh yeah, we're gonna offer this BIPOC spot. And mm. that to me always feels like so just put on and fake to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I- That's my I, main I, issue with these things. Yeah. There really isn't, yeah, yeah. There really isn't a desire. I mean, and obviously they want the minority POC voices that align a certain way. Because I'm a person of color. I'm Cuban from Miami. And throughout the mob, I was a white supremacist. I was a white supremacist or I was a Miami Cuban, depending on what you thought like my skin color was. Like it went back and forth. So obviously, once you stop being the proper token, then then you have a, you know, you're not wanted anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, Blake Smith uh, wrote like an amazing essay about that for Tablet, actually, yeah, about okay. how it's a kind of privilege to not um, have your identity tokenized. Um, you know, like 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 for 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 people who aren't who who aren't like sort of white and upper middle class or 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 genuinely rich, like. Um, when you, when you submit to, um, fellowships or institutional opportunities, yeah, like you basically are expected to, um, to, to address explicitly your, your identity in some way and, and how it influences your writing and to, to have that 
in your writing in a really explicit way and how 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 not having to do that is is a kind of privilege so yeah I I, I get that and I and I've definitely felt that as well like just just like yeah, just this idea of like sort of having to self-tokenize to some extent, it's really uncomfortable and, and unpleasant. Um, that said, you know, I, I think that, I yeah, I think one of the reasons that that interview maybe claimed the way that it did was like, you are using these like, sort of tribal signifiers and I and I kind of get it because like you even you even talk about like making a heel turn right it's like it, it is it's, it's, it's wrestling piece. it's a persona yeah. it's yeah it's, in the it's piece, yeah I'm glad you brought that up because yeah it's in the it's in the thing you know yeah 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 I mean uh, to me like it was clear from the start that it was like you were being hyperbolic like as soon as you called yourself the Iowa pariah I was like okay like clearly my biggest like, influence not, in life is pro yeah, wrestling like yeah. If you want yeah. to understand like Alex Perez's writing, the biggest influence is pro wrestling. So obviously, if anybody's read some of my other work, yeah, it's not in this kind of you know performative mm -hmm. hyperbolic way. I believe everything that was said in the interview, but obviously, you know, style was chosen in a manner right. you know, to kind of you know make it this you know this like pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. This thing in wrestling called drawing heat, and when you draw heat in wrestling, people boo you. The worst thing in wrestling. Is no reaction. You either want cheers or heat. So yeah. this was a piece where I purposefully wanted to draw heat. The yeah. last thing you want to draw is no response. So obviously, like I said, if you've read my other work, it's not in this kind of performative fashion. And I mean, it's even like in the piece, I say I'm going to, you know, I say I'm working the gimmick, which wrestling lingo means when you're working the gimmick, you're putting on that performative, you know, wrestling persona. So that was like in the piece. And what's really fascinating is that so many writers on Twitter have this kind of histrionic persona but when they see another person performing they're kind of appalled because they can only understand one one kind of literary performance because obviously if you read yeah. this interview this is a performative kind of thing right. but but it wasn't in the performance of the histrionic kind of style that people are used to so i think it was also a clash of the performance styles that i found really interesting I love that. I love that phrase in clash of performance styles. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, I mean, you and I are kind of in the same sphere of Twitter, where there is this like, sort of like, um, understanding of like a ludic or like a just like a, um, a gamified almost approach to to writing and to, to tweeting. And, and, and I think that when we sort of, um, engage with with people who aren't who 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 aren't like following those same norms then yeah like like certain things can come across as like very incendiary versus like yeah for me like reading your interview with you saying with you talking like with you with you calling yourself the Iowa pariah and talking about being a heel I was like immediately like okay yeah like everything that is here is obviously like hyperbolic um, and there's even stuff that I disagree with, but, uh, like, you know, I, I wasn't, yeah, I guess I wasn't, I, I, I just couldn't, um, I, I personally didn't feel like it was quote unquote harmful or violent or, or damaging, um, in a, but obviously like it, it, yeah, I think there's a, there's a question of norms there. Um, speaking of which I, you know, one, one thought that I had while, preparing for this interview and reading over your 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 interview with Elizabeth Ellen again is um 
you know, this question of like safetyism in literature and specifically the hashtag safer lit movement. Um, my thought there was actually like, I, I kind of don't have a problem with it necessarily. Like, I actually think it makes sense for there to be certain publications that are branded as safer lit um, for, for, yeah, for people who have had like maybe like traumatic experiences and don't want to read something that is kind of fucked up. And, and, and the reason I say that is because like, um, like on a personal level, I really understand that on like a visceral level because I hate, for instance, I hate gore. And I absolutely cannot watch movies with gore in them. And, and so having like a movie rating system or, or just even word of mouth, people telling me like, hey, this movie is really gory. Like, I'm like, okay, I good. I'm not spending $13 on that. And, and I don't even think it necessarily needs to be like a super like morally inflected thing. Um, I, I think that it just like makes sense to like categorize uh, certain writing, you know, as like quote unquote safe or not. Um, Potentially, right? Like, and, and so I don't have a problem with safer lit spaces. It's just that I, I do think that like for magazines like Hobart or maybe other publications that we know, like, you know, whatever, um, expat, um, um, uh, misery tourism, which is shut down. Uh, it, you know, they're, they're explicitly not that. And, and so I think what's, yeah, I think what's happened too, is that to a certain segment of writers, it's mm -hmm. assumed that every mag now is a safe magazine. And yeah, I'm with you. If there wants to be some magazines that are like, you know, safe spaces for, they can do that. That's great. I mean, I have no problem with that, but I think the problem is now, yeah, you have a segment of writers that they assume that every single magazine now is going to be that safe space magazine. And that's a problem because then like, I mean, like, I don't understand why writers pulled their stories from Hobart, obviously, because mm -hmm. now they were toxic, but I think it comes from the assumption that they'd assume that Hobart was a quote-unquote safe magazine because I think now they assume that most magazines are so I think yeah maybe it would be useful for for there to be and it kind of feels to the response to the interview that there is this like fracture and probably in all of culture but in the lit world where there are people who like don't want that and others who do so it's a, I mean yeah so if there are magazines that are safe magazines like I have no problem with that I think it's only an issue when writers assume that every magazine is like that it's maybe the yeah. ones that do that, mm -hmm. yeah, they just should be explicit, like about, you know, you know what they believe, what they don't want in their magazines. And like, if a magazine isn't explicit, I think writers should assume that this isn't a, this might be a magazine where you might read something that might bother you. Like, I don't have any yeah. problem with a magazine like being explicit, but I think it's tricky when writers assume now that every magazine, and that also goes back to the kind of ideological uniformity of a lot of these scenes. Like, if yeah. you're so in that mm -hmm. bubble, people just assume that every single magazine. Yeah, like if you read expat and you're you know and you're kind of surprised by something edgy that's on you for not knowing what expat is because right. it comes from the assumption that everything is under this kind of you know ideological banner yeah no i i i do i i do agree with that i think that um and i think the rage yeah. elizabeth came from that i think yeah. the rage toward her came from that that people felt that they were betrayed because they felt that hobart was mm -hmm. i guess yeah a safer space, you know, magazine. And here came this guy and he destroyed that kind of, and so I think there was this massive betrayal. And for those people mm -hmm. who felt that, that's a real thing. But I think there was an assumption there that magazines have this like, you know, kind of 
they like owe the readers to never change or shift. And it comes kind of, yeah, from the assumption that now every magazine is kind of under this ideological banner. And when that was pulled away, I think that's where a lot of the anger came toward her, that people had assumed, oh, here was this magazine that we thought yeah. it was okay for us to publish. So, yeah, I think maybe we're going to need some kind of like explicit magazines. And I'm sure they already exist. I've seen some where they say, you know, we don't publish this. And that's, you know, if writers want to do that, that's perfectly fine. But I think it can't be assumed that every magazine is like that. And I think a lot of the cultural battles we're having are about that question. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, do you, that's, that, that's the other thing that I was curious about. Do you think Elizabeth Ellen actually ended up, um, so, so for, for listeners who don't know, Elizabeth was one of the founders, I think co-founders of Hobart and is the person who interviewed you. Um, and, and she also got a lot of heat. Do you, do you think that she actually sort of got more heat than you did yes. ultimately? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is it because Absolutely. she's a woman, Alex? I think so. I, yeah. think, I think that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a factor. And also because of what I said, that uh, she was the one who platformed this person who then made the magazine toxic. And that was a betrayal. But she received uh, just yeah, massive amounts of hate, seemingly yeah. personal hate. And I think, yeah, it, it's tied to that, that, that uh, it was this understanding that Hobart was one thing and then overnight it became this other thing. So I think that to me is a more fascinating question. Like how do we navigate this lit scene now where people are bringing in these kind of beliefs that the assumption that every magazine, and when you see in the lit scene, when you see a magazine get into trouble, it's when they deviate, you know, whether it's expat in the past or other magazines, it's when they, when they deviate from the assumption that people have about them. And so like, mm -hmm. yeah, we're already seeing this kind of fracturing because I mean, yeah, there are there are these little magazines that have kind of by what they publish and who they publish, they're they're kind of already have made themselves not on the fringes, but they're doing a different thing than like this uh, kind of you know ideologically kind of uniform yeah. other side. So there really is a kind of fracturing already there. It's just a problem when a magazine that's slotted on one side then now you know makes a pivot or now goes to the other side. Yeah. Sorry, my neighbor's dog is barking. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, yeah, I I was kind of thinking, I was kind of thinking about just like watching the whole like Twitter drama unfold and and how much how how many people were sort of going after Elizabeth Ellen. Um, um I was just, I, I was thinking about like the recent reaction to um, you know the movie about Marilyn Monroe, uh, Blonde, you know, and um, and. <laughs> And weird puritanical, um, it, it's at the same time sort of like misogynist, but at the same time sort of like overly protective. Um, like I, I just read a Sam Chris uh, essay about this, about about you know because um, in, in that in that movie Blonde about about Marilyn Monroe, like um, a lot of a lot of critics had took issue with its depiction of like unrelenting um, sort of abuse and degradation and, and, and the way that it sort of just didn't handle, didn't handle. Um, her, her pain or, you know, um, mental tribulations with kid gloves. Um, it, and the, the sort of expectations that we have about public personas, especially, especially for women. Um, 
and and I and this is something that you talk about in the interview as well is just like this sort of moralizing the, the way that like stories are either like good boy stories or you know good girl stories or if they're not that then they're sort of um parsed through this like moralizing filter where it's like okay it depicts it depicts abuse it depicts you know something really gritty and gross and therefore is like immoral and, and I think you talked about um, workshopping a story at Iowa that you think today would have just completely bombed uh, because it, it did have like sort of similarly gritty depictions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's funny about like those stories that I mentioned in an interview, like that story in Iowa was a massive hit and it wasn't by any means like problematic. It was just guys in Miami, you know, messing around, drinking, doing like Miami, you know, urban kind of things. And like when I was at Iowa, it was fascinating because that story probably wasn't my like most well-written story, but because of that like world that it was trafficking in, like, a lot of my peers that went that weren't from that world, like they loved that story, and there wasn't any kind of like moralizing that the characters were doing bad things or whether they were good people or not. It was just this is a slice of life story that's like capturing a certain element in Miami in the '90s, and like I think that same kind of story now, if it's kind of trafficking in that gritty thing, readers automatically bring in all this ideological baggage that they bring in. And to me, that's been a really big, I mean, I've been in the writing world for a long time now. And to me, that's been one of the biggest shifts that readers now bring in a lot of ideological baggage into the things they read. Uh, because like, I saw that story and it's a story that would now, maybe they'd say the character for, I don't know, too edgy, but like at that time, 10, 11 years ago, it was just characters behaving. I mean, it was a fictional story. There was never any kind of like, connection to the writer or it wasn't like even with the interview like to me it was it was weird that you can write something that's obviously had a performative element to it and maybe it's even mean in parts and then people assume automatically that that like you that you, you the writer are also like this really mean person it's because we've lost yeah like i said there's only one style of literary performance and like that's been totally lost like it's in the piece like i'm working the gimmick and goes back to that story too. It's like nobody, nobody assumed at Iowa or for a long time in the writing world that if you wrote these gritty stories, it didn't mean that you were like, you know, doing these things or you were like saying, oh, not like, you know, these are good people. There was like this like understanding that this is fiction and there isn't, I mean, unless you're a totally ideological fiction writer, there isn't really any, you know, you're not like pushing any angle. And now readers, I think, come in because we're so ideologically just baggage now, all of us, that readers come in with these things. And if they see like an urban person of color character, like now they're gonna assume this character is like under the thumb of whiteness and America's bad. And if the character is just doing bad things, it's because it's like overarching system. It's never that maybe this guy's just, you know, doing bad things because he's a, you know, kind of a dick. Like that's never assumed anymore. Now that, now this baggage is laced onto a story. And I can say like, all my, all my early stories, these weren't characters that I was thinking that they were like, you know, resisting capitalism or they were, I mean, sure, maybe in the world of that story, these things are outside factors, but it was never this thing that I was trying, that I was thinking about. And like readers back in the day, not too long ago, they gave you the opportunity before they put this baggage onto your story. And now people go in with all the baggage, their own personal politics ideology and that and like, writers understand this so what do they do they start creating stories with this in mind you create what i call a token good boy story that you mm -hmm. understand where your audience is going to you know 
bring into the stories as it is. So you can kind of, if you want to do that, you can kind of either frame your characters that way or you do the meta thing where you kind of wink, wink, and, you know, but that's what's happening. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am concerned about that sort of moralizing turn um, in, in, in the way that, um, especially other, I think, writers read read stories because I, I think what what's interesting is if yeah like if you sort of give these grittier stories to people who aren't in the writing world a lot of times um the reaction is not they, they, like people don't parse it the same way they just don't that's they don't know to be shocked half of my life is this writing life where i write i edit mm -hmm. i'm on twitter i'm around writers and then my real or my, you know, my other life is being in Miami around people who have, who will never be shocked by any of this because this is the world that they live in. They will not be shocked by bad words. They will not be shocked by a story with a character who like does something bad. They wouldn't be shocked. So for me, like it's always so telling. It's always almost just like a whiplash thing when like I'm going through this like interview thing going crazy on Twitter. And then I'm talking to my buddies that if I were to just like, you know, record that conversation, I, I mean, it'd be some bad things being said. And not that, not they're not saying bad things, but the language, they might like curse, they might say things in a way that's kind of crass. And like, those are just the way, I mean, like a lot of working people communicate that they will never be shocked by like, you know, these stories. And now people who come from the writing world, they bring in this baggage that, that is just like, the assumption is that these stories will have something problematic. I think that's a lot yeah. of the framing that people come into these stories. And to me, yeah, to me, it's always weird being somebody who lives in a place and around people who aren't thinking about these things at all. They're just going, they're just living, they're trying to do the best they can. They're not thinking about these concepts at all. So whenever like I leave Twitter and I go talk to my buddies, we just have a regular day, you know, yeah. talking about sports or whatever. It's so, it's so shocking. And it goes back to the class thing. Like it really is a class. You really have to take the time out of your day to understand what the bad words are now, how they're shifting. That is a total class thing. And like, I can give my buddies here who don't really read that much. I'll give them my stories and they'll just think they're funny because they're about Miami guys like them. That's it. There'll be no other, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because um, that that new like Ruben Oslin movie just came out, Triangle of Sadness. Um, but it, it, it's sort of in the same vein as um, his previous movies that are sort of like poking fun at... Um, at, at well in, in in this case you know it's the hyper rich and um his his uh last movie that i saw the square was sort of about not the writing scene but the the visual arts um and and there's this one scene in in the square where um there's some sort of like an arts gala or benefit or something like that and there's a guy there um the, you know, one of the, one of the audience members who has Tourette's and he starts just saying slurs, like really like very misogynist things. Um, and you see the audience and um, the organizers sort of at a loss at how to deal with this instance of like <laughs> neurodiver, you know, neurodivergence and like, um, and how to square that with their proclaimed norms of, of tolerance, right? And I do think, you know, my my sort of beef, I guess this is a bit of a tangent with Oslin movies is like, um, 
you know, they, they, they sort of poke fun at that dynamic amongst the hyper rich, like amongst the 1%. But that dynamic is absolutely established in the professional managerial class as well. And I think that is something that I would like to see sort of criticized more. And I, and, and I kind of took that to be like the basis of your criticism um, in that interview with Elizabeth Ellen. There's a massive, massive discomfort with people who aren't even poor, people who just aren't part of that PMC. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't imagine a lot of the people who hated on the interview, like I said earlier, hanging out like in Miami or like in working class cities, like, because if that's really the way they go through life where they're constantly just aware of like language in a way that is going to, you know, be problematic, I can't imagine them. And I think, yeah, there is a massive discomfort with uh, working people and people who are truly marginalized, who just who just don't have the same uh, mm -hmm. language style. Because to me, yeah, it goes back to the performative element of the interview that so much, because if it was written in a manner that wasn't in this performative kind of Miami tone that I, you know, kind of used, sure, there would have been beef with the content, but I think it would have been muted. I think there was something yeah. really problematic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about a guy with my pedigree right. and my credentials, you know, who's like ticked all these like elite boxes right. talking like this Miami guy. There was something about that that really Yeah, that people. was out of bounds. Yeah. yeah. Why does this guy who went to Iowa, went to Breadloaf, mm -hmm. have all these nice little credentials? Why does he talk like a Miami dog? I think that <laughs> bothered them. And, and yeah. that, that was a part of my performance. That, that was a fun, that was the fun part about writing this because you get to play with performance, you get to play with style. And mm -hmm. the fact that that, and the fact that writers were bothered by that tells me that we have this massive gap now between the way people are thinking about writing and style and aesthetics. I, I actually, yeah, I actually 100% agree that if you had made your criticisms like in just like a slightly different way, um, it, it would have been, much more, um, if not accepted, then 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 like it, it would it wouldn't have caused the the ruckus that it did for sure. Yeah. And I, it is because you're adopting like a sort of different set of like behavioral norms and like um, really and vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Because to me, like when the hate first started, it was for the first couple of days. It was all about the content, and then almost really quickly, it was about. It was about the words and kind of just, you know, the mode of communication that was something about it was, I think, even, I think even outside of like some bad words I used, I think people were disgusted by almost kind of this like element of kind of some street talk that was in there and almost yeah. like the fun of, and the fun of using it. And it yeah. goes back to the class thing, which wasn't talked about because th there is this underlying class tension. And yeah, and yeah, people even well, toward the end of the hate, mm -hmm. they were really explicit. They made points like, oh, he made some good points. If only he would have said it in a nice, in this way. like sterile way mm -hmm. of academia. Yeah. No. Um, I, it, it's funny. Let, let me ask you, that kind of brings me to my final question. Um, I noticed a few days ago, you made this tweet and I thought it was really interesting because the point that you made could either be seen as like totally based or like very woke um, just again, based on like the inflection of, of, of the wording, I guess. But so you, a few days ago, you tweeted, quote, 
My friends in Miami who don't read books and speak Spanglish are better literary stylists than most writers I read. Incredibly funny and unrestrained language, jumping back and forth between English and Spanish. It, I thought that was like a really interesting tweet because it's actually like this, um, this idea of like writing in Spanglish or writing in a mix of English plus a foreign language is actually something that... Um, came up recently, I'm, you know, because, you know, I'm in an MFA program as well. I'm taking this like pedagogy class for how to teach literature. Um, and that actually came up as like a topic. Um, uh, th this concept of like writing for your community and writing for readers who understand both languages, as opposed to like, um, you know, like a white readership that, that, that only speaks English, um, right? Like, like, like there is a way in which that could be spun in sort of a, in sort of a woke way. And in, in fact, I've, I've seen like Twitter discourse where like the marble statue avies, you know, the trad right wingers, like these people, like they hate like literature that has like Chinese or like Hindi right. in it or whatever. Cause they're like, oh, why isn't it translated, you know, for my benefit. Whereas, you know, you give these people like Borges or like Lies Mons and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, like uh, untranslated French and Latin, that's totally cool. Um, so, so you see how like the same exact issue can be inflected differently just based on like, you know, who you're friends with online and uh, like what people assume about which tribe you belong to. But in fact, it's like the same exact point. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I think an issue with that too, with the interview, there were like parts of the interview that were probably pretty woke i'm calling for you know more hires of that so i think a big problem was that the people were even bothered that this guy making some points they didn't like and speaking in a bad manner was also being woke at parts there was like a discomfort and a tension there that mm -hmm. there there wasn't like this like you know consistent ideological thoroughline yeah it was just going i think also with that tweet it's kind of the same thing like those are my favorite tweets where they're kind of or my favorite kind of writing where they're kind of in that world where you can't you know, where you can't say, uh, I mean, that somebody can take it one way, somebody the other way. I think, yeah, it's telling that pe people want writing now that it doesn't make them uncomfortable in any kind of ideological way. Because yeah. there were like, I saw people say on Twitter that they were, that they hated that I made a point that they agreed with. I'm like, that's weird that, I mean, it should be good that we're like, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, sharing points of view that, I mean, that should be good, but yeah. They're so used to this ideological like flattening that if somebody who's not on your quote unquote side makes a good point, that even gives you more disgust. And, and because why is this quote unquote bad person? Why is he making points that I make? So like, like I saw people on Twitter like having those like internal struggles, and it all goes mm -hmm. back to this like people bringing in their baggage, ideological baggage, to every single thing they read because it was in there. I'm working the gimmick. There were things there that should have been obvious, and it was obvious to some really smart readers that were like, okay, this mm -hmm. person. There's, there's, he believes everything that is said there is what I believe, but obviously there was this chosen manner of performance that mm -hmm. I wanted yeah. to, you know, that I wanted to take on that, that I thought was pretty clear, but apparently yeah. to a lot of people, it wasn't. Well, I, 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 I did see that Alex. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think that's it. That, that, that's all I wanted to chat with you about. Um, yeah, dude, um, you know, hang in there. Um, and yeah, like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. Like, I, I, I hope, I know that you said that you're more focused on writing sort of these, um, 
opinion pieces now, but I would love to see more fiction from you. I, I would love to see some more sort of bad boy Miami stories <laughs> if you ever get around to publishing more of those. I probably should. And to all the people who are pissed off, don't worry. I, I'm back to writing book reviews that nobody reads, so don't worry yeah. about it. I'm back to writing book reviews that everybody reads, <laughs> so don't worry about it. Sounds good. All right. Well, well, thanks, Alex. Um, I'll catch up with you later then. Thank you. The words mean I am a truthful man from the land of the palm trees. And before dying, I want to share these poems of my soul. My poems are soft green. My poems are also flaming crimson. My poems are like a wounded fawn seeking refuge in the forest. The last verse says, Con los pobres de la tierra. With the poor people of this earth I want to share my fate. The streams of the mountains please me more than the sea. Me conocemos que el mar.